Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Modernism Real Estate Podcast. This is a fun and casual conversation, essentially, between two su- super cool realtors about real estate topics and with what's happening in today's market. Uh, make sure to hit that follow, like, and subscribe button so that you don't miss anything. Oh, and another thing is, um, I realized that we never really introduced ourselves uh, in the first two episodes. So my name is Sam Bruce. We're awesome. both real estate agents here in uh, Bellevue, Washington. Awesome. And today we are joined by our uh, good friend, Tucker Maxwell. Tucker, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself real quick? Yep. Hi, everyone. I'm Tucker Maxwell with Guild Mortgage in Bellevue as well. So thanks for having me. Awesome. How long have you been a, a loan officer? I've been a loan officer for six years and all of those six years with the same office at Guild Mortgage. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Can I ask how you got into being a loan officer? Yep. Yeah. So uh, funny story. I got strong armed into the industry by my wife. Uh, yeah. So my wife has been in mortgage for a really long time and uh, thought I would be a great loan officer. And so she decided that uh, she would uh, ultimately give me an ultimatum to switch the career I was in and come into mortgage. Nice. Nice. Was it like, um, did she kind of think that like your personality kind of like fit the job essentially? Yep. Yes. I was in uh, sales before. Mm -hmm. So ultimately originating loans is similar. And she just felt that I care about people and I would put that first. And she didn't see that as a commonality in the industry. Uh, So she just thought that I could transfer, you know, what I was selling before into home loans and that I would put the client's best interests first. And so she just said, Hey, you'd make a great loan officer. We should try this out. Awesome. Nice. Yeah, so for uh, the podcast number three here, uh, we wanted to kind of go over this conversation, wanted to kind of take the direction of, I guess, loan products, the natures of loans, what it looks like to work with a loan officer, uh, and things like that. Like, And so, which is why uh, we wanted to invite you to today's podcast. So hopefully uh, the our uh, viewers and listeners can have a great time listening to what you have to say. Um, so for to start off, we'll go talk about like the natures of loans, essentially. We know that there are like interest rates, terms. Is there anything else that you think that a client should take into perspective or take critical note of when they want to get into a loan for a home? Yes, sir. Yeah, great, great question. I think there's so much focus on interest rate and at the end of the day, it might not be the most important factor. Um, so what I usually recommend people do is right from the jump, they understand their numbers. So the most important component to a home loan is their monthly payment, right? That's ultimately what they're going to pay every month. That's what's going to create a comfortable lifestyle. That's going to avoid being what we call house poor, where you have a great house, but you can't afford your lifestyle. You can't continue to go out with friends, all of those things. So really understanding, you know, what is a comfortable monthly payment is the most important factor. And then secondly is how much money you want to put towards this home purchase, right? We don't want to be tapping into 401k or retirement funds if we don't have to. We don't want to liquidate stocks at a time when stocks are down, things like that. So, you know, how much you want to pay per month and how much money you want to apply towards the loan. And then we'll back into those things and back into the loan that fits those goals. Gotcha. Now, can loan officers typically like offer like financial advice like that? Like, hey, don't dip into your 401k type of thing. Like if, if you see a client saying like, oh, I have the down payment, but I just need to dip into my 401k. Do you kind of like advice against that or is that like against the rules? 
Uh, no, we, uh, another great question. So what we'll do is we'll typically ask them if they have a financial advisor and make sure that they're vetting that through their financial advisor. Um, but a great loan officer is going to make sure that we're not just trying to get that transaction done, but we have the long-term interests in mind. So we're going to talk to them about that. You know, it's not necessarily a terrible thing to do a 401k loan to buy a home, especially if, you know, home prices are going up. And if we're having to save for a down payment, the longer it takes us to save, the higher the home price goes. So it may be advantageous to dip into a 401k, do a little mini loan to yourself to buy today at today's price, and then pay yourself back. Yeah. So it just depends on the individual situation, but we do want to make sure we're not giving tax advice or you know financial advice that we're not legally allowed to do. Gotcha. gotcha. Great question. Great question yeah. there. Yeah. Do you have a question? You look like you have a question. Uh, yeah, well, I'm just excited to have Tucker on because yeah. uh, I, I always talk in to, to my clients, like, you know, there there is really a difference between lenders and you want a lender that's like has both the breadth of knowledge and is also someone that is is super competent on on the process. So that's what I that's what I really like about Tucker. Um, and that leading into a question, uh, let's talk. Let me ask you how your process is 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 differs because I know that your process is it goes above and beyond. You go above and beyond in in all respects. So. Uh, tell me a little bit about your process and what you do for, for your clients above and beyond. Yep. Yeah. So again, great. You guys have great questions. So I think the, the, the trying to true things we all have to do, right. We have to have a robust product mix. I have to be able to offer all the home loans that are out there. We have to close on time and in quick turnaround times, we have to communicate well, right. Those are the givens. But what I think really sets us apart is allowing our clients to make the most competitive offers out there to help them win in this market we're in, right? We don't want them to uh, go under contract on their fifth or sixth most favorite home after making five failed offers. So what we do is we allow clients to make really competitive offers by removing the contingencies without taking on risk. So as you two know, there's you know, common contingencies in a contract, financing, appraisal, yeah. all of those things. Yeah. What we try to do is we fully underwrite all of our clients up front, and then we guarantee their earnest money. We give them the confidence that they can waive financing without the buyer taking on all that risk. And I think that's where we differ from other lenders is other lenders say, hey, Sam, if you want to do that, good luck to you. We're, what we're saying is, say, Sam, we're going to walk that with you. And if, if we made a mistake in underwriting, we're going to guarantee a portion of your earnest money if you go beyond wow. our limits. So that way, if you put your confidence in us in that pre-approval letter and we made a mistake, we're going to own that mistake and reimburse yeah. you for mm -hmm. lost earnest money or moving costs. Yeah. I, you know, now that you mentioned that, I actually never thought about, about that. Like, I didn't know that. I Like, I knew that the real estate agents would be able to lead these clients and kind of help them win these offers essentially like yeah. by having a strategy but i didn't know that lenders or not lenders uh, loan officers had also that strategy by like it, it seems more in the financial uh aspect of strategies to have a competitive offer for their clients is there other strategies like beyond that too or is it mainly just the financing portions of of the of, of an offer yeah um, so kind of two answers to that. One, I want to kind of go back to what's important for a lender to do is have a conversation with the buyer about those contingencies that are in the financial 
lame, right? Yeah. If the first time they hear of a finance contingency is from the two of you, mm -hmm. and then they have to call me and say, hey, Bruce or Sam is asking me if I sh what I should do with the finance contingency, what do you think I should do? Now we're losing time. So right. at the pre-approval meeting, I'm saying, hey, there are some contingencies that are in the purchase and sale agreement. Let's go through the ones that are on our side. So finance and appraisal. Mm -hmm. So the the second part of your question is what else is out there is I typically will know because we fully underwrite an applicant if we're going to need an appraisal or not. Yeah. And so we may not have to do an appraisal, which eliminates a low appraisal risk, may, you know, throw that out. So we can waive financing and waive the appraisal contingency without there being any risk because I've already ran it through the system to know that we'll need one or not. So I have a quick question. You talk about underwriting, and for me personally, I've, I understand it to an extent. Uh, I would I would assume that most people would not know what underwriting means. Can you give it in layman's terms of what underwriting is and what that looks like? Yep. So that that great great question again. I think we use a lot yeah. of jargon in this. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. You know, we do this day in and day out. But underwriting is ultimately just the process at which we vet an applicant against the get guidelines. So do you qualify against the rule book, if you will? And this rule book is for like loans, for instance? Yeah. So okay. every specific loan type, you know, there's four main categories of loans or five. You have conventional, you have FHA, VA, USDA, and then jumbo, which are just like your large loan amounts. Mm -hmm. Each loan type has a specific rule book that we have to follow. And it's standard across the board. It's not specific to my organization or another lending out institution, it's set across the board. And so depending on the loan type, it tells us what specific requirements we have to meet in order to qualify for that loan. Um, so really it breaks down to four categories, um, if you will. Um, first is going to be um, debt to income ratio, or to put it in kind of more basic terms, it's mm -hmm. the spread between how much money you make and how much money you pay out in bills every month. Okay. And we can only use a certain portion of your income on your bills so yeah and so that's one of the criterias actually i wanted to ask this question before we continue any further so let's say like you have a, a client that's renting out an apartment does the apartment the cost of the apartment also account for debt to income or would they take that out and then kind of because they would be getting into a home like yep yeah uh, we would remove that payment because uh, okay it, gotcha especially if they're going to be utilizing a primary resident home gotcha. loan mm -hmm. is you know, for it to qualify for a primary residence or in the home you're living in, mm -hmm. you have to occupy that property within 60 days. So we're assuming that they're going to break that lease or they're going to, that lease is going to end and they'll no longer have that payment. Yeah. But we are going to count the new home loan payment in their ratio. Yeah. So, so essentially, mm -hmm. yeah, so yeah. essentially if the apartment was just the same price as what their home mortgage would have been, they would have no issues. Yeah. I mean, that should tell us that they're comfortable at that payment amount. Okay. Got right? it. Right. Uh, so going back to the question, that's, you know, a really key question that I ask them is how much are you paying now? Mm -hmm. Are you comfortable? Are you being stretched? You know, what is that feeling today? Right. Yeah. And then are we increasing that, you know, monthly expenditure or are we keeping it in the same ballpark? Gotcha. Um, the other factor, so ratio of income to debts is first. Mm -hmm. The, the second criteria we look at in this underwriting process would be down payment or how much money do they have to put towards the purchase? Because that's going to tell us kind of ultimately what they qualify for as well. Yeah, down payment is probably the one thing that most people 
Well, I'll, I'll, I don't want to speak for most of the people here, but like, uh, I'm I'm 27, pushing 28, and uh, I would think that most people around my age have a difficulty time getting around that. Um, but uh, continue because I, I have a cu couple questions for down payment. But yeah, continue with the down payment. Yeah. Yep. So we want to know how much money they have to put towards the home purchase. Mm -hmm. um, what a lot of people don't know, or the myth is that they need 20% to buy. Mm -hmm. um, but that's that's really not the case. There's conventional loans that are available with as little as 3% out of pocket. Yeah. And then also in Washington state specifically, there's wonderful down payment assistance programs that cover the full need of a down payment. Mm. So we can get people into a home loan with very little out of pocket. What does the Washington down payment assistance program look like essentially? Yeah. So there, there's different programs within the commission. So Washington state housing finance commission offers a wide variety of programs. Uh, but the the way it's structured is it's a little mini loan, so it's not necessarily free money. You are going to pay it back down the road, but it covers your full down payment requirement plus a little bit of the closing costs. Oh. Um, and so, yeah, it's just this mini loan. Most of the time it doesn't carry interest either, and it just sits there. We call it silently mm -hmm. because you don't make payments on it, and then when you buy or, excuse me, you sell or refinance that loan, that's when you would pay it back. And I'm assuming that most people pay back with their equity. Yep, exactly. And, right. And just, so if we lower the rate, we're going to roll it in at that time. Or when they sell down the road, they're just going to pay it back with equity. I might actually have to use that, not going to lie. I, I, I think that sounds like a pretty good idea, honestly. It's awesome. And there's zero interest. Yeah. Right. So there's so many different strategies to that because you can you can either put like use the down payment assistance program or you can go with the like three and a half three percent fha loan yep but if you do that route you have to go to the pmi mm -hmm. like you have to pay for pmi essentially so i actually saw something the other day where um they're like oh yeah you can get into a loan with three and a half three percent but you have to pay the pmi and and um it was this conversation that i watched online on tiktok or something like that and um, they did not like PMI so much that it almost kind of like turned them away from the FHA loan. Do you find that the PMI usually has that effect on clients too? Yeah, I think that's like the old myth, right? Yeah. Don't buy until you have 20% because you're throwing away money for PMI. Yeah. Um, but it's important to know the pros and cons uh -huh. between a conventional loan and the private mortgage insurance that's included with that mm -hmm. and the permanent mortgage insurance on an FHA loan. So mm -hmm. there's some components that are different. But what I always like to remind people of is let's say, you know, you're, you're looking to buy today mm -hmm. and you don't have 20% down. So we are looking at a scenario with private mortgage insurance. Mm -hmm. What does that look like compared to how long is it going to take for us to save 20%? And in that time frame, what are home prices going to do? If I can secure a lower price today and pay a little bit into private mortgage insurance, would I be better off than waiting five, seven, 10 years, whatever it takes, so I can save 20%? What is the home price going to do in that time frame? Yeah. Right. You're yeah. probably going to pay a lot more for the home. Right. Yeah. So, might have been better off buying with by Yeah. By waiting, they're probably digging themselves a deeper hole because, you know, homes only appreciate over time. So, exactly. And it's a moving target now. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and I think, yeah, that, because what is it? I mean, say if you're buying a $500,000 house, is it? like 200 bucks a month for private mortgage or something like that. But that number is like, wow, that that's a lot. You know, I don't want to pay the 
Yeah, I think that's the thinking around. Yeah, yeah you, you know, feel like you're throwing that money away. Yeah. You know, you don't get it back necessarily. So, but um, PMI that's, is PMI through PMI. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Just yeah. So for our listeners out there, PMI is premium mortgage insurance, correct? Yeah, private mortgage. Or private. private yeah, yeah. Private mortgage insurance feels like a premium. <laughs> it is an insurance premium. Yeah. yeah. Essentially. Now. A question about that is, do they pay like a one-time fee or is it entirety of throughout the loan or until they refinance essentially? Like what, like how does that work? Yep. So again, it's going to vary based on conventional versus FHA. Starting with conventional, you pay private mortgage insurance until you get to 20% equity, uh, at which okay. point then it drops off. So you would work with your loan servicer to say, hey, I've paid down to uh, 80% of the value mm-hmm. or I have 20% equity. And then we would remove that amount from your payment. On FHA, mm-hmm. it's an upfront premium that is rolled into your loan amount most often. Okay. So it's financed in. Mm-hmm. It can be paid cash, but most people just roll it into their loan plus a monthly portion. So it's split in half. Uh, uh, so you're paying like half your principal and half the uh, the PMI monthly. Like, monthly. Okay. Yeah. So um, a good loan officer is going to position both and let the consumer choose and show them the pros and cons of both. Mm -hmm. The one thing about conventional private mortgage insurance is it's risk-based. So if you have two borrowers with great credit profiles, that premium amount is going to be much less than it would be for somebody with worse credit profile. Mm -hmm. And on FHA, it's just standard across the board for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so um, somebody with great credit may not be advantageous to go FHA. Gotcha, gotcha. So, um, but again, we want to outline all of those options and let them make a decision based on what makes specific sense for them. Yeah, definitely. And then also going back to their monthly payment goal, there's going to be a difference in payment conventional versus FHA, mm-hmm. which one gets us closer to that monthly payment goal. I see, I see. Gotcha. Yeah, so we were essentially talking about underwriting, and then we went into the process of what it looks like for pre-approval. So you, we went into like the debt to income ratio, we went into down payment. What else is in that process that you think is important? Yep. Um, Next is employment and income. Mm -hmm. So we want to verify that this person's held steady uh, employment for two years. Mm -hmm. Um, And for your your listeners, it's really important to know that if they're a W-2 employee of a corporation, so let's say they work for ABC company, Mm -hmm. we want to see that they've held that type of employment for two years. Or if they're self-employed, as the two of you are, Right. And make sure they've been self-employed for two years. So that two-year component is important to check into. Oh, sorry to interrupt. But there's a third thing, too, which is interesting to me uh, because I'm I'm 22. Uh, a lot of my friends are still in college um, or doing their master's, right? That two-year, is it not waived if you're getting a job in your degree path? I've heard that before. Yep, absolutely. So we can use school transcripts to help us overcome that. Right. Yep. Wow. I did not know that. So yeah, we want to reward somebody. You, know? yeah, you stay. Yeah, definitely, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. yeah, and for most people, they're getting a degree. They're going to go in. They're going to have a stable job. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if it's like professional services or a certain degree that leads to a license or something like that. They're most likely going to have steady income. So right, just show that they've you know completed or been in some type of education program, and then use whatever history they have in their job to get us to a twenty-four month history. So. so Oh, so if I'm like, if I'm like, you know, getting my engineering degree, I got a bachelor's, I go and I get an $80,000 job, you know, offer letter. Once I get that letter, 
can I then use 80,000 as income for a lender basically? Yep. So we're, we're going to use that offer letter for yeah. pre-approval. We are going to want to see that you started. Yeah. So we're going to double check yeah. that on the first day of your employment, you showed up. <laughs> right. Not just and, have the letter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then we're yeah. also going to want the first pay stub just to make sure that, you know, you didn't get cold feet and just get the letter to get the house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's kind of, I don't know anyone that would want to do that. Cause that'd be like setting up yourself a failure, you know, like you saying that you would pretty much get paid. 80, I guess you're like, yeah, I, you you're, have some sort of other thing that yeah. you want to do some other income. <laughs> they are still going to be on the hook for the payment. So <laughs> right, 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 right. right. So, you got to think about that. Yeah. 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 Back to the question too. Um, so for in income and employment, um, the two-year history shows us that there's a historical, like a history of that, mm -hmm. which helps us to determine if it's likely to continue. Uh -huh. So that's with employment and income, we're looking at, was there a history of it and is it likely to continue? So okay. two components to it to make sure that we're qualifying them off of income that is likely to continue moving forward as they're in this loan term. Gotcha. You, you verifying their income essentially in two years at the job right so let's say let's say someone is working two years at a job and they they decide to get a loan and then once they get the home they did they quit their job what happens then does that change the term or does that change in any way of, of, of i don't know yeah does that yeah, because we verify them off of income that they don't no longer have yeah yeah so Another great question. So technically speaking, we verify all that up front. Uh -huh. Once they sign loan documents and we fund that loan, what they do there forward is completely up to them. And we're not re-verifying income and employment after they have the loan. Because they've closed on the home. Yeah. Like, you can't right. live there anymore, you know? Right. You not like, yeah, six months later, you know, yeah. we saw you lost your job. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're sort of sitting, typically going to find out once they start missing payments. Uh, right. Sorry, there's an incentive for them yeah. if they miss, right? So hopefully they have some savings and they can weather that time between jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's, there's some motivation for them to get another job because that payment's going to come due. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. no, it, it, that's typical. You know, people move from one job to the next, or maybe they didn't like what they were in the field they were in and they transition. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But the debt obligation still has to be fulfilled. So once they close the loan, we're really just monitoring payments. It, it I guess it just sounds more like a risk to, to them, especially. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So there was uh, the, there was DTIA. Uh, ratio, debt to income ratio. There was down payment, there income, was income, yeah, employment, income and employment, and then uh, was there another one? Yeah. yeah. So the elephant in the room, credit. So credit, credit uh, reports. Yeah, right. yeah. So the one right. that most people are, you know, most afraid of. Um, we're gonna pull a credit report, mm -hmm. and we're gonna see what their credit score is. So that's the first component to it is we have to meet a certain credit score threshold yeah. in order to even be qualified. Mm. And then we're also going to look what what does that credit report entail? Mm -hmm. You know, are they making payments on time? Do how many trade lines do they have, or do they have other trade lines? So car trade payments, lines, oh, okay, car payments, credit card payments, medical bills, student loans, things like that. Uh -huh. um, and we're going to you know see what their payment history is within that report. That also is going to tell us what credit accounts we have to count in their debt to income ratio. Mm -hmm. So in that spread between their income and their bills, 
we're going to verify their bills or their monthly payments off of what's being reported to the credit bureaus. Mm -hmm. So um, let's say uh, an individual has a credit card mm -hmm. and they use it every month and they pay it off in full sometimes and other months they don't. Mm -hmm. We're not going to use the full balance that they owe in their ratio. We're just going to use the required or the, yeah, the monthly payment minimum that they have to pay. So on a credit card, let's say the required monthly payment is only $25. Mm -hmm. but they owe 9,000, we're only going to count the $25 against them. Mm, so that's why we use the credit report to not only verify the score, but also it helps us dial in the ratio between their income and their debts. Okay. Right, just the payments. So I got to ask you, how accurate is credit karma? Like I got the app on my phone, I'm checking my score, you know, I'm always going back and forth with my friends. Hey, my score is higher than yours this week. You know, yeah. <laughs> how, how accurate is that? Is it you know, because I know it's not a hard credit check. Is it actually accurate? Yeah. So, um, you know, and I don't want to talk specifically about credit karma, but there's a lot of credit uh, reporting agencies that give consumer information. Like, yeah. So, party. Yeah. yeah. They're probably yeah. going to be your bank, credit union, credit karma. There's a bunch of them out there. Um, and they're, they're fairly accurate. Um, however, they are in incentivized by the credit card companies. So it's, it's in their best interest or in Visa or MasterCard or these companies' best interest to say, Bruce, you have a great credit score. You should use debt, right? Yeah, so yeah. we have to remember that, that there is an incentive to them to show you a positive score. So what I tell people is, one, it's great to monitor your score on there because you're going to see if there's any fraudulent activity. If you see your score drop and you're like, hey, I didn't do anything out of the ordinary this month. I made all my payments on time. I didn't take out new debt. But my score dropped, hey, that might clue us into, hey, there might have been a fraudulent activity on your credit profile. So that's one thing I think is uh, really important. The other thing is we talked about the minimum credit score threshold. Yeah. If Credit Karma is telling you you're not quite to what I need to qualify for, for a home loan, maybe I don't do a hard inquiry and ding your credit when we already know we're not quite there. So we can do some credit improvement and we can work on credit scores using those scores before actually doing a hard inquiry into your account. Just as a guide to help you monitor your behavior and... Yep. Okay, cool. Uh, but cool. once we do pull credit, what I normally notice is that the score that I pull is usually a few points below what's being reported to the consumer. Interesting. So and that could be for a variety of uh, reasons. I don't think it's because they're using a inferior credit modeling or anything like that. Yeah. It's just when we pull credit from a home loan perspective, we put emphasis on your mortgage history. And if you're a first time home buyer, you don't have mortgage history. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to get that, that score boost. And then, uh, for other people that are moving up, if they have on-time mortgage payments, they might have a higher score because we're weighting it more heavily on those home loan scores because that's what we're writing, right? We're going to loan you hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy a home we know that people protect their home before other bills. You might like miss a credit card bill, but you're gonna make sure that mortgage is paid so that you have your, your dwelling, you know, your, your home secured. As a loan officer, do you have any advice for people who are looking to get into homes to increase their credit? Like, do you have, what, what, what does that advice look like? Yep, so um, one is using credit regularly. So having a credit card or having a car payment and making those payments on time is, we need a history of using credit. It's actually more advantageous to use credit than to not have any credit at all. Yeah. That's so okay. responsible use of credit um, is first and foremost. The other thing is make every payment on time because the it, it's an algorithm that we use. And the highest 
uh, weight of that algorithm is on on-time payments. Mm -hmm. So never missing a payment. And then looking at the, the credit accounts and your credit limit. And what I often uh, advise people is be mindful of what is the credit card limit and what is your balance. And you want to be at 30% or less of the available credit line. Mm -hmm. So don't max out the card. Make sure that balance is on the low end. Why? Why would it? Why thirty percent? This is the first time I'm I'm hearing that actually. So because we look at that as if you have available credit, that can get you out of a rainy day situation or an emergency uh, situation. Yeah. If you're at ninety five percent, you only have five percent left. You can't a car. You know, has issues. Yeah. You might be in trouble. Yeah, uh, yeah. You want to see that there's a because credit cards, you know, often aren't used. They're there for these emergency situations. Yeah. And so we want to see that there's like room to, to use it. Almost like a healthy habit of spending rather than like a right. very unhealthy habit. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it could make more sense to have two cards with very low balances than one card maxed out. Yeah. I, I typically, when I use my credit card, I, I know that by the end of the month, I can pay the full amount. Right. Like that. And I don't leave any remaining balance. Yeah. And that's one thing. I, yeah. Um, yeah. Just like, don't just make the monthly payment from my point of view. I'm like, oh, the interest, it's like 25%. Exactly. You know, you know, you're, you're paying it off in full every month. I think optimally yeah. this is what you want to yeah. do. Yeah. And what's crazy is like, you need credit in this, like in this, like in the United States, you need, yeah. there's yeah. just no way that you can live without it. Yep. And I know some people that don't have credit, which is crazy to me. Like no card or anything. They don't have a credit card. They just have a debit card. And I'm just like, dude. Right. Dude. If you have like no credit at all, you never had a credit card or anything, any kind of loan, can you, is there a way for you to be able to get a mortgage? We have to develop a score. So but let me back up. So yeah, we, yeah. we have programs, you know, at Guild Mortgage that we can build a, a credit profile for somebody that doesn't have a score. Okay. So we do have a program that's unique that we can start to to help them with that. Um, but traditionally, we're gonna have to build a score. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna have to go out and get a secured credit card where you give the bank $500 and they give you a credit line of $500, right? There's no risk to them because they're holding your money. So you just yeah. have, yeah, you just use that. That the credit over time where they say, right. hey, Bruce, you, you've, you've had this secure card, you've been using it and paying it off, you've been doing good, we're gonna extend more credit to you. And over time, that's gonna produce a score. The other yeah. thing we can do is have family members put you on as an authorized user. So now you get some some points that way. Um, but we kind of have to build build yeah. a score. There's no way around it. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I see. Interesting. Uh, so <clears throat> that was, I'm going to reiterate one more time here. Uh, that was the debt to income ratio, the down payment, the credit, the income, and your job. Yeah. Uh, is there, is, is that what the process looks like? Or is, is there more to it or is that what that is? Yeah, so um, what we do is collect an application. That's going to tell us some of these details. You're going to tell us who you are, where you live, where you work, you know, the pertinent information that we need in order to build out an application. Yeah. And then we're going to request supporting documents that support the answers. Mm -hmm. So we don't necessarily just take your word for it yeah. anymore. Um, so we're going to collect. <laughs> you can't have that. <laughs> yeah. That's what created the, the housing crisis in 2008. So we'll talk about the big short. But oh, yeah. ultimately, before that, we just would say, hey, Sam, Bruce, how much do you make? Great. And you'd write it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, oh, man. Whether you could afford the house or not. Yeah. 
Today, we have to collect the supporting documents that go with those answers. So if you tell us you work at you know, ABC Corporation, for yeah. instance, we're going to collect pay stubs that show that you've been paid by ABC Corporation. We're going to collect W-2s, tax returns, bank statements. We're going to verify everything in the application to make sure that it's legitimate. And that's what we're going to use the application, the credit report, and those supporting documents to submit through the formalized process of checking you against the guidelines, which is the underwriting process. Yeah. So that's our way of checking, double checking, and then officially issuing a pre-approval because we've done our homework and we know that this person does in fact qualify for the home loan that they're trying to buy with. I'm assuming this stand this is standard procedure for all loan officers and all mortgage uh, brokerages, correct? Yep. So a majority of home loans, the funds for those loans come from the same institution. So you've heard about Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, these yeah. institutions. So as home loan providers, we get our loans from the same organizations. Okay. They're the ones that set the guidelines. And so therefore we have to follow the same rules across the board. The application is exactly the same. The government, again, after 2008, and when we crashed the world economy by writing bad loans, they realized the loan needs to be uniform. Gotcha. And so there's one application that we all use, no matter if you're at a bank, a credit union, a mortgage company, the application, we call it a 1003. It's the same government form every single time. Mm -hmm. Then when we issue loan disclosures or the terms of the loan, those documents are now uniform as well. Okay. So I can't manipulate numbers and hide things and be like, you know, here's a bunch of signatures and bury the interest rate down in the document. Right. They yeah. standardize that. So it's always in the same spot, no matter what lender you go to, to make sure consumers understand what they're getting. Gotcha. Actually, I have a question. Um, so in the first episode, <clears throat> me and Bruce talked about getting a pre-approval, not a pre-qual. Um, yeah, not yeah. a pre-qual. Did you see that episode? I did. Okay. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> They're not created equally. Yeah, no. yeah definitely not. Um, why not? Um, Tell us why not. Yeah. Well, a, a pre-qualification is really just a conversation. So I could do a pre-qual on the spot. I could talk to somebody and say, roughly, how much do you make? Roughly, what are your bills? And based on this quick conversation, you would qualify at this level. Essentially, it's not verified. Not the other verified. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And in our market specifically, a seller is going to want to make sure that that buyer is good for their offer. And so as a loan officer, I proactively call the listing agent when an offer is submitted and say, hey, Bruce applied with me. He's fully underwritten, pre-approved. We're putting our money where our mouth is. We're guaranteeing a portion of his earnest money. Mm -hmm. We're good for the loan. Yeah. They're going to want to make sure of that before accepting the offer, taking the property off the market, going in a pending status only to find out Bruce wasn't actually pre-approved and now we're back on the market. Mm. So in, in our market specifically, they're going to make sure that that's been done. Yeah. Um, so that's really the main difference between a pre-qualification and a pre-approval is the full verification mm -hmm. of the information. Okay. Yeah. Another thing that I wanted to ask you actually was like, uh, in the first episode, we talked about like people going to a bank to get a home loan. Like, what is the difference? Is there a difference? Is there any uh, advantages to going to a bank or disadvantages or like which, which way is the more preferred method of attaining a home loan through the bank or through a loan officer? Like what are your thoughts on that? Yep. So um, 
I think it's going to vary based on who you ask, right? Mm -hmm. There's great loan officers at a lot of different lending institutions, whether it be a mortgage bank like Guild Mortgage or Bank of America or Wells Fargo or any of the bank. Like, uh -huh. I want to just lay that out there that there's great loan officers at all the places. Yeah. And so depending on who you ask, they may have differing thoughts. But what, what it really comes down to is you want to work with somebody that's local, that is available when you and your clients are buying a home. In, in our market, we have a lot of people that work like an eight to five or a nine to five type position. They're buying homes when they're not at work. So is the loan officer available nights and weekends when those people are looking at homes, making offers, strategizing on offers so that they're available? Are like, you available nights, weekends too sometimes? Absolutely. Yeah. Like we're recording this on, on a weekend. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, nice. But yeah, you know, it's it's something that we have to manage, you know, work-life balance um, and our families mm -hmm. know that it's part of the 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 job but yeah in you know in the evenings i'm working on pre-approval letters sending loan approximations on saturdays and sundays when offers are going out i'm calling the listing agent um, and it's just part of the part of the the job so i think that's the main component yeah the other thing is understanding what types of products they have to offer there are some banks that only offer their specific product mm. and may not have the wide variety of options that another institution may have yeah could you verify this for me so um, in the first episode, I also did mention that uh, when you work with a, a bank for a home loan, they have their own rules and own, like, I guess, under underwriting. Correct. Essentially. And when you work with a loan officer, they have a bunch of different lenders who have different underwriting procedures. I mean, they're very similar to, to, an, to an extent, but it gives the client the flexibility of like, oh, if this lender doesn't work, then we can go to another one. Whereas- Exactly. Yeah, okay, gotcha. Yep, no, that, that's exactly right. And I think that's the advantage of a mortgage banker mm -hmm. is we have all the big banks programs because mm -hmm. we can broker to a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, conventional loans. Mm -hmm. We have FHA, VA, USDA. Mm -hmm. We have a wide variety and we can say, okay, Sam, here's four options that you fit into now let's look at the pros and cons between yeah. these versus saying, hey, here's the only option we have for you. Take it or leave it. Yeah. Or like you, they may not even get approved for it. Yep. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. It, on that note, with regard to the markets you serve, we have a lot of the tech community that is paid restricted stock units or RSU income. Mm -hmm. That's a huge component. And every loan type has a, a ruling on that. Mm -hmm. Some allow RSU income, some don't. Some want to see that it's trending upward, so increasing in value. Mm -hmm. Some don't care if it's decreasing. So there's a lot of components to it. So I think just yeah. specifically to the east side uh, or the whole greater Seattle area, that component is a very big question as to who you want to work with because we need to have multiple options depending on how is your RSU paid, when is it paid out, is yeah. the stock going up or is it going down in order to use it as income. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Nice. So how long does this process typically take? I know that every clientele is different in terms of like getting them verified and things like that. It really depends on when they get their documents to you because that's all dependent on them. Yep. But if everything was to go smoothly, like, like, uh, how long does it take to get the loan approved? And let's say they already found the home, like, that probably takes like a month for the home to close through like title and escrow and 
earnest money, but I'm wondering what that process looks like for the pre-approval. Yeah, so it's going to depend on who they're working with. Um, you know, for my team, we we guarantee to do a fully underwritten pre-approval within the first 24 to 48 hours. So depending on their documentation, we'll determine how quickly we can do it. Uh, mm -hmm. A borrower that's W-2, has all their money in a checking account, it's fairly straightforward. Uh -huh. That could be same day or at the maximum of about 24 hours from, like you mentioned, once we have full application and all the supporting documents. Gotcha. If they're self-employed, a lot of rental properties, a more complex underwriting, mm -hmm. I would say maybe a day extra, so within 48 hours. But again, every mortgage bank is going to have a different answer based on their workload, how many loads are in front of you in the underwriting line, things like that. And so it just depends. But what's most important is that the loan officer communicate that timeline to the client and to the agent mm -hmm. so that they know. Um, and to have some flexibility with it. You mentioned some people fall in love with the home and they call me, it's Saturday night at 7 p.m. And they're like, we just toured this property and it checks all the boxes we want to, we want to make an offer and mm -hmm. they haven't started the process. <laughs> So oh, sometimes as, as a great <laughs> loan officer, you have to yeah. allow some wiggle room to allow them to kind of jump in line and get them right. quickly mm -hmm. while also maintaining the validity of their pre-approval. Have right. you ever had to break break that news to any clients before? Like, like we can't get it done fast yeah. enough? Or like, like uh, we love the home, but we haven't been approved yet. And then their approval amount hasn't is not close or hasn't gotten to the home of the price or price of the home yeah that's the really tough tough thing that's uh really uh, it's it's a tough conversation that i have to have mm -hmm. um so going back to earlier in our conversation the the most important thing we can have buyers do is really understand their numbers up front mm -hmm. right go through that pre-approval process because the last thing you want to do is fall in love with a home you can't afford yeah you can't unsee that home, right? Oh, you can't, once you see that, once you fall in love with it, you're, there's no going back. Yeah. And especially if it's a drastic change in price. Mm -hmm. How are you going to forget the, you know, the outdoor space, the amenity, the yeah. design yeah. kitchen? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's a tone down, lose a bedroom, no backyard, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Then now you're kind of disappointed. And so we always say, you know, start with the pre-approval process, mm -hmm. understand yeah. your numbers. Yeah. Once we know what that purchase price looks like, then work with professionals like you mm -hmm. to to find the homes that fit that, okay. right? Because we don't want them just going to any home without regard to the numbers. Yeah. Um, the other thing I always tell people is stay off the online listing services. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not even gonna name their names. We all know what they are. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the services you all provide that vet homes and send them, okay, here's your criteria. You want four bedrooms. You want no less than 3,100 square feet. You want this specific school district. You want an outdoor space. The two of you are going to vet that and make sure they're only seeing the homes that fit their criteria. Mm. By them going online, they're going to see all this fluff, all these other homes that don't fit their criteria, and it just gets in the way. Yeah. And so I always advise people, it's just distracting. pre approved. Yeah, yeah, it's distracting and it's, it's wasting time. Yeah. Right. Why are they looking and potentially falling in love with? A home only to find out that it's not in the school district that they've desired or mm -hmm. a big one around here is it might not have the internet speeds that they need in order to both work from home and have the kids online and all yeah, that stuff right, and yeah, so right. by working with a professional that can put them on what is the feed called that you send them homes on is there like a certain uh, 
Yeah, through the Northwest MLS. Uh, it's called One Home. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we're it, we're going in. We're checking. You know, send this one um, to them and um, send some. You know, an email with a nice portal and. Yeah, we actually have a criteria that that we look for too. Yes, yeah. we qualify our clientele. We ask them what they want, what they don't want, and yeah. then we kind of put that through search, and then list of homes comes up, and then. We could essentially send them all of them, but there's so many like uh, homes that we kind of have to like be picky, or right, curating, and yeah, you want to have it more curated because that's a better experience than ever to send it by email. Yeah, but that's yeah. the value you break. Yeah, and a big not thing. only you're going to limit their liability on the contracts and help right. them understand what they're signing and all that, but I think that's the major value you bring is you do that front end search for them, so that way they're only spending their time yeah. evaluating homes that fit the basic criteria. Yeah. And you can always expand the criteria, right? You can just yeah. change it if they uh, say, hey, I want to make an adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. They would just have to let us know and then we kind of reconfigure our criteria, search criteria essentially. Yeah. So the I think for listeners, the, the key component is work with a professional. Don't try to do it on your own through those online search engines. Yeah. You definitely get like, you're not... Yeah, I think the the value that they're adding there is time. Mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest commodity in this life too. Like they right. can they can search all all on those other sites as well. Uh, but they it wouldn't be a curated search. Mm -hmm. Uh nor well, I can't really speak for uh and some of them don't even have like they don't have an agent. So like Bruce was talking about how like uh he could figure out like if it has any zoning, mm -hmm. like potential zoning for like an ADU or a DADU, which is like an additional dwelling unit. Like if you want to build things or build upon that home, uh, your real estate agent would provide value in that in that sense where they can find those things out. For me, it's personally like if that home will appreciate, yeah, like really well, more than more so than others, essentially, um, like. Like, I, I don't know if you listened to one of the other podcasts. Uh, I think we talked about, like, the appreciation of homes. Mm -hmm. um, everything appreciates, obviously. Yeah. I would say Bellevue, more so, appreciated faster and way much more than any other city right. in Washington. Yeah, especially yeah. in the last few years. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy. But yeah, um, <clears throat> that's an important thing too to watch is the zoning laws in Bellevue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I had a recent conversation at our office with you know a major developer and the mayor of Bellevue, and they're expected to change the zoning laws in Bellevue this year or at the latest next year, which is mm -hmm. going to increase the density, which is going to allow ADUs and DADUs and oh. cottages and things like this to be built. Yeah, because we have to answer the inventory shortage question, mm -hmm. and so. That's more more to follow on that, but that's going to really change the landscape too because now a single-family residence that's on a big lot, maybe with a detached garage, mm -hmm. that home is going to appreciate faster now because it's going to have the ability to add this accessory dwelling unit. Right. Gotcha, gotcha. I do want to transition to our next topic here, okay. which was uh, a loan products essentially. Okay. I, we understand that there are a lot of different loan products out there. And, but I think that's more power to the clients and more power to the loan officers as well, uh, that they're not so limited there. I feel like loan products out there can be, you can use different kinds for different 
uh, scenarios that may benefit the client as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? Let, let's start with like the more common ones that we see so far, and then I kind of I kind of want to hear what your thoughts are on more uh, unique or specific uh, loan products out there that uh, people may not know about. So okay. yeah, yeah, uh, great question. So I think first we'll talk about uh, primary residence. Mm-hmm. So homes that the buyer intends to live in specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the most common one is conventional financing. Okay. So these are loans that are ultimately delivered to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the big, you know, providers. Um, and so those are your everyday loan. They are available with as little as three percent down. Um, they go up from there, um, and they're your more mainstream loan that every lender can offer. Mm. So that's, I would say, the the bulk of the loans that occur in our market are are conventional financing. Gotcha. Outside of that, you have FHA, which is the Federal Housing Administration. Mm-hmm. And that is typically used for people that don't maybe have the down payment that would be required on a conventional loan mm-hmm. um, or may have a situation where we need to stretch them to a higher purchase price. Mm-hmm. Uh, so going back to debt to income ratio, on an FHA loan, we can go to a higher ratio than I can on conventional. Mm-hmm. So if I need to stretch somebody's budget we may utilize an FHA loan because they may qualify for a higher price point than they would on conventional. Okay. So with a low, smaller down payment, does that change the interest to a higher interest rate than uh, like a 20% down payment? It can. It can. Yeah. So okay. traditionally, yes. Yeah. So what I always mention is interest rates are a reflection of the risk presented to the bank. Uh-huh. So if we assume you two have two separate applications, if one application presents less risk to the bank, they're going to get a more, a better interest rate yeah. than somebody that has a higher risk, mm-hmm. right? It's just a, a risk analysis. Okay. We don't have to charge somebody as high on the interest rate if they're less likely to default on the loan. Right. So what if they have a down payment assistance? Does that change the interest rate as well? It can. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it depends on the down payment assistance program. Mm-hmm. The Washington State Housing Finance Commission sets the rate, gotcha. so it's standard across the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there what's what is the most unique loan product that you've come across or that you guys offer? Yeah, so that's a tough question. Uh, there's a lot. So, real quick before we get into the most unique, I would say. VA loans are pretty unique because only somebody that has served or is currently serving in the military can qualify for those. So that's kind of a unique, you know, scenario that only those folks that qualify can use. You said have served, right? Yeah, or are serving. Oh yeah. So like, let's say they're veterans. That if they're a veteran for the entirety of their life, or like, does that? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So as long as they honorably served and were honorably discharged, and they have the home buying benefits of that service. Right. They can qualify for a home loan. And the the value of a VA loan is that there's zero down payment requirement. Yeah. So they can qualify with little out-of-pocket. Gotcha. Um, so that's, that's awesome. They also don't have private mortgage insurance. So they can put oh. zero down. <laughs> oh, not have mortgage insurance. No, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, great benefit there. Yep. So, I mean, they've given us service, so we should reward them with that. Absolutely. So, you know, the least we can do. Um, but so some unique uh, loan types, I would say one is to be mindful of our area and our home prices mm-hmm. is jumbo loans. Uh-huh. So once we mm-hmm. exceed the conventional loan limit, so really think loan amounts north of like 980,000, so million dollars more 
or more of borrowed funds. Mm -hmm. Those are going to be jumbo loans. And so those are going to be very unique to the institution that we are brokering that loan to. Mm -hmm. So think large banks, regional credit unions, things like that. Those banks are willing to take on those large loans. Yeah, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac aren't willing to take on those loans. No, they're saying that's a little bit, they're too rich for their blood. Too much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But- um, the banks and the credit unions feel that that's good risk, especially around here. You talked about appreciation. Yeah. Our home prices, they know it's going to go up, so it's good risk. Um, another unique proper, uh, loan types are going to be based for investors. Right. So if it's not your primary residence, you're going to get loans that are specific to rental property. Like a DSCR loan. Exactly. Right. I, yeah. yeah, I was about to ask uh, about a DSCR loan. Um, but you sent me an email a few days ago. It's a little uh, spiel about the DSCR loans for yeah. Yeah. Yep. So uh, first the acronym. Yeah. Right. There's an acronym soup here where you have a <laughs> lot of acronyms. So debt service coverage ratio. Mm-hmm. So what these loans do is they allow an investor to qualify based on the sole premise if the rents generated in the property cover the mortgage payment. Mm. So that's how it boils down to the basics is if rents exceed what the, the debt is each month, then we can qualify. So it's a great loan where we don't have to check their income. We don't dive into have they filed taxes? Are they currently claiming enough income to qualify? Like our standard ways of calculating income. We only look at the rent schedule as provided by an appraiser. So let's say you're gonna buy 123 Main Street as an investment property. When we order a standard appraisal report, we're gonna ask them to in- include a rent schedule, which is a fair market analysis on how much per month can this property generate in rents. We're then gonna apply a 25% vacancy to that. So we're gonna assume there may be times where they're between tenants. And as long as the rents outweigh the mortgage payment, they would qualify. So you said a 25% vacancy could that 25% vacancy be used for like a primary resident being the primary resident? Uh, well, we don't, um, we're not wondering if they're going to be there. Uh-huh. We just, we don't want to qualify somebody at such a tight qualification uh-huh. that doesn't take into consideration. They may need to c- carry this payment for a few. Like if yeah. they don't have a tenant in there. Gotcha. Exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. I so, um, but it's it's a really cool loan. Um, they typically require a pretty big down payment, right? Especially with oh, interest yeah. rates being higher, the payment has to be less than the rents. So, so what does the down payment essentially look like? You're for sure looking at no less than twenty, and right. probably somewhere between twenty and forty percent. Just mm-hmm. depends. It depends on the price of the property and the available rents in the area. Right. And so that- in a higher priced area that can rent super high, mm-hmm. yeah, maybe lower. Pay a down payment requirement, and and that's big too. As you know, especially here on the east side, um, it's it's all you know risk and and rate. You know, they're all interrelated. So yep. Bellevue is super safe, you know, area for property values. So the 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 amount that you get or the cap rate on the property is is low sometimes. And I've talked to a lot of you know people that you know maybe it's a nine hundred thousand dollar house, but you know. If they were to get like a five percent loan on it, then it just wouldn't cash flow. Right. So they, they're, you know, the strategy there is to just put more percent down, so at least it cash flows, you know, a few hundred bucks a month. Yep. Exactly. So it's a valid investment. Yep. And that's the whole component to DSCR loans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is the cash flow. 
it's that is what we're evaluating. And if it cash flows, you qualify. And that's really the only component that we use for qualifications. So to give a little context to our listeners, yeah. DSCR loans are typically more for investors. It's, yep, investment mm-hmm. properties yeah. only. Investment properties. Not for a primary residence. Yeah, so, and then when they talk about like cash flow, it, cash flow is like your monthly income from that your your investment property is generating on a monthly basis, correct? Right. Yep. Yeah. So we we refer to it as the net operating income. Mm. So rents received compared to the full PITI payments. So principal interest taxes insurance on the property. Does the rents cash flow or create net operating income that would flow through to their tax return showing income on the property? Can I ask you if the DSCR DSCR loan is most popular for investments? Yes and no. So somebody that has a, a great job, they it may not be real advantageous for them to use a DSCR loan if they can qualify through a standard conventional investment loan. Mm-hmm. Um, but for specifically your investors that um, they don't want us to look at tax returns, they don't want us to do a debt to income ratio analysis that's who this loan is really for. These are for investors that want to just solely qualify off of does this property cash flow and that's it. So it's for your 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 investor clients that don't necessarily report a lot of income. Yeah. So one question I'm curious about is it that you could use this type of loan um to purchase your next investment property or if you have an investment property already, does that ratio cover your mortgage? You know, does it cancel out your, yeah, does it either cancel out like your properties that you already have, or do you use it to buy your next property? Say, oh, well, we don't have to look at anything here because this property cash flows X amount based upon the appraiser's rent analysis. Does it work both ways? Um, yes and no. Um, the, the advantage to this loan is we're not going to look at those other properties. Right. So let's say you have five properties and some of them are cash flowing, some of them aren't, or most of them in around here, they are cash flowing, but you may not have told the IRS that they cash flowed, right? You wrote off all the expense or you showed that they just barely cash flowed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you wrote off your interest, you wrote off all of the things. So I don't, I can't give legal tax advice, but you know, they, they use the tax return to write off expenses that may impact their debt to income ratio. If they're showing losses, we're going to hit them with those payments and their ratios. And so they may not be able to qualify based on how they filed taxes on those previous five properties. Yeah. Yeah. So this allows them to buy that sixth property solely based on does this one individual home cash flow. I see. I like we went uh from like first time home buyer, what's going on? How do I buy a house to like now we got six yeah. we got six <laughs> properties. We got I gotcha. So um, that's the goal. We want to help people move up. No, so you start in the first time home buyer and then you become an eventual investor and have the, you know, cash flowing properties for right. more residual income. Mm-hmm. I guess uh Absolutely. I do want to include some other parts of the uh audience, possible audience. Yeah. I know that there are definitely um, uh, loans. I, I spoke to another loan officer, uh, which I mentioned to you earlier this week, but uh, loans for um, influencers. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So again, big component is, you know, how do we verify that income? Yeah. You know, are they getting YouTube ad dollars? Are mm -hmm. they getting um, TikTok, you know, income, OnlyFans, whatever it is. We just have to be able to verify it uh -huh. and show the historical data. So do, do we have two years history of this type of income? Mm -hmm. Is it being reported through their taxes? Mm -hmm. Then we can use it. So it's looked at no differently than the the commissions generated on a real estate sale that real estate agents claim. So it's more like an entrepreneurial, like yeah. self-employment type of uh, approach for the underwriting process. Yeah, absolutely. So for influencers, they're getting 1099s for that income. There's oh, 1099s okay. for your audiences, the official government document that they that these businesses issue that show that they paid this individual revenue. Mm. And then it's up to that influencer to report that 1099 income on their tax returns. Mm. Okay. It's up to them as a self-employed entrepreneur. Mm. So then we would ask for their tax returns to show you know, how much of that income did they claim? How much did they write off? Same kind of, you know, like as expenses and yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Um, and we, the tax returns are really going to come into play there because mm -hmm. we're not going to necessarily just qualify them off of how much money they're generating each month. We're going to see, you know, how much of that income are they actually flowing through on their tax returns? Mm -hmm. And so it's really important for the audience to know if you are an influencer, if you are self-employed, we verify you off of what you tell the IRS. Mm. Okay. So just keep that in mind. A lot a lot of self-employed and influencers may want to write off expenses to limit their tax exposure, mm -hmm. which is great. There are opportunities to do that. And if you work with a tax advisor, they're going to walk you through what's legal and all that. But when buying a home, we go off of whatever you told the IRS, not necessarily what you think you make each month and mm. you know how well you're doing right there at that time. Right. Gotcha, so gotcha. if you're preparing to buy a house, try to claim as much income as possible so that we can qualify you for the most home or at least the home you want to buy. Mm. And so as a, as a mortgage loan officer, I do that kind of analysis for a lot of people, especially now this, when we're recording this, it's tax season, right? So a lot of self-employed borrowers are sending me their proposed tax return and saying, hey, if I file it this way, how much home can I qualify for? Mm. Because we want to make adjustments before they file. Right. We don't want to use an amended tax return. So we, we use this front end to kind of fine tune the numbers and say, hey, if, you, if that's how much you're going to claim, this is what you qualify for. Gotcha. If you claim more, you'll qualify for more home. Mm -hmm. okay. So I wanted to ask Tucker, you know, for the consumer, are there any like myths about getting a loan or are there any uh, maybe fears that the average person would misconceptions. have misconceptions yeah. about getting a, a loan? Yeah. So I think what was really good that came out of 2008 yeah. is they eliminated any opportunity for bait and switch, predatory lending, things like that. They've really streamlined the process so that it's uniform no matter where you go get a loan. There are typically no prepayment penalties, which is why a lot of people got in trouble during the housing crisis. Um, majority of our loans are 30-year fixed-rate mortgages that don't have prepayment penalties. So we're writing good loans, and we're verifying that somebody can qualify it. So we're vetting the buyer. We're writing a good, solid loan that doesn't have surprises, which is usually going to lead to success in a home-buying situation. So I think that's kind of what's good. It's 
it's eliminated all these opportunities for myths or misconceptions. Um, but also starting the process out with a professional, cool real estate agent like the two of you and a local lender that they can trust. Like that's, you. They, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That's going to help them have a successful and uh, a stress-free home buying experience. Mm -hmm. And so taking the time up front to understand that those components are really important, build your team, stick with your team throughout the process. I, I, I find a lot of people start with interest rate and they're so concerned with getting the, the lowest number. And sometimes that's where they get into trouble because maybe they don't fully understand that, yeah, it has a lower interest rate, but it's a 15 year loan and not a 30 year loan. So the payment way exceeds their monthly payment. Goal. Mm. Or, you know, they went with an online discount lender and they can't ultimately get them to the finish line and the loan falls apart. So build your team, you know, rely on them and that should lead to a successful home buying journey. Gotcha. Mm. I do have one other question as well. <clears throat> like when it comes to a loan officer, uh, obviously there, there are a lot of great loan officers out there. What do you think in your opinion is differenti differentiates a very good loan officer to like, like an, uh, a very competent one to an incompetent loan officer? What are those traits that these clients should be or these uh, buyers, sellers should be looking for essentially? Yeah. So two components. One, I think trust and that you feel that this loan officer has your long-term um, best interests at mind, mm -hmm. right? This isn't a one-time transaction. What we talk about a lot at Guild Mortgage is we want to create clients for life. So it's not just this transaction. It's not just the future refinance. It's what is your long-term goals and how do we help you with home loan products throughout your entire life? So essentially you want them to, once they get their home, you want them to be like, oh, Tucker helped me last time. I want to go back to him. Right. Same, same idea with re like real estate agents essentially too. Yeah. Like, and we, we service our loans as well. Mm -hmm. So right now I'm getting a lot of questions around, you know, my taxes are going up. What is that going to do to my payment? And by servicing their loan, collecting those payments, I can look into their loan and see that. So not only are we helping them close that loan, but we are the customer service on our for the life of them making payments on that loan. Gotcha. So that's that's really important. The other thing I think is a huge component to uh, you know a confident loan officer or a good loan officer is one that is willing to be a student of the industry. Loan guidelines change almost daily. Wow. Interest rates change by the minute. <laughs> the client situation changes. You know, every every client is different, and so outside of a good lender is going to be, hey, Sam, Bruce, that's a great question. Loan guidelines change. Before I answer, I'm gonna go verify the answer versus just throwing an answer out there and hoping I'm right. Oh, it should be like this. Like, yeah, or yeah. it was this way yesterday, yeah. so I'm just gonna assume. <laughs> yeah, or if I don't really know, I'm just gonna fake it till I make it, right? right? Yeah. Just so yeah. and no and Yeah, and to right. be willing and humble enough to say, hey, that's a great question. Let me verify it based on current guidelines. Okay, yeah, so something. One thing is like there is a very busy market too, uh, and so interest rates, like you said, are changing on the daily, by the minute, things like that, right? Now, one concept that I do want to ask for the buyers is yeah. a rate lock. Mm -hmm. Oh, and you also, I guess it's for sellers too. 
<laughs> like, what is your thoughts on that? Would you even suggest it? Like, how would you kind of go about that? Yeah. So first let's talk about when you lock a rate. Yeah. So typically speaking, you lock an interest rate in when you go under contract to buy a specific property. So we've used one, two, three main street. We're going to continue that process. So buyer gets their offer accepted to buy one, two, three main street. At that point, when we typically lock a rate and we lock it for a certain number of days that gets us through the close date on the contract. Gotcha. So while they're out home shopping, the rates can fluctuate up or down and we're floating. Mm-hmm. And until they're on a contract, we don't know for sure what that rate is. And so as a loan officer, it's my job to understand what is likely to happen with rates and should we lock the day we go under contract or should we float? And float is the term we use for kind of gambling. Should we kind of see if that if that rate will go lower, but yeah, you know, higher too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so what is the the risk? Mm-hmm. You know, what is the likelihood of rates going down versus what is the likelihood of rates going up? And <laughs> here we play this. Go terribly wrong sometimes. Yeah. Like, as you're like <laughs> way at your limit there lending and like rates go up, you know, like you know, a quarter of a percent, like and you could lose the house, right? Yeah, Bruce, that's the key component is, is this buyer at that threshold? If so, let's lock at a rate that we know they guarantee qualify at. Right. And let's not play the game. But if they're... If they have a lot of room and they're more risk tolerant and more... (laughs) I feel like... Yeah. We'll give them a more exciting day today. (laughs) And I'm going to put that on them and say, hey, here's the pros and cons. What would you like to do? So, So that's kind of the component to locking a rate. We have a kind of a unique program right now we were seeing that sellers were having a little bit of trouble selling their home in our market while interest rates were climbing Mm. buyers were getting cold feet they were wondering hey is this only temporary we'll wait till rates come down and so we're seeing homes stay on the market longer Mm -hmm. now check the stats the market has changed and is continuing to change quickly but we do allow a seller to lock in a rate too which Mm -hmm. is really unique yeah a seller could say hey the CPI data, the consumer price index data is showing that inflation's going up, interest rates might be headed up. Can I, as a seller, lock in the rate and then advertise that to future buyers and say, I locked in early February, it's now late February or into March, but you still get this older interest rate at a lower rate if rates went up. How long does that rate lock last? Because listings typically last more than a month sometimes. Oh, like that's if they're priced not well. Uh, I've seen listings go all the way to 210 days, maybe even a little bit. That 210 was actually like the longest I've seen a listing go on um, on the MLS, but right. Yeah. Well, so the, they'll want to look into the guidelines specifically. So again, great lender answer here was let's check the guidelines, but that's something that they should be communicated to mm-hmm. and say, okay, there will be a fee associated with it. So mm-hmm. A, what is the fee and how many days does does that rate lock give buyers time to close. I see. Gotcha. And it, it's a risk they're taking, right? So if we give them 120 days, they have to s- accept an offer and have it close before the 120th day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, check the guidelines specifically with the lender, but that's something that they'll have to evaluate. Plus deduct that upfront fee of locking that rate from their proceeds. Okay. Right. I, yeah. I think it all wraps into that strategy that what you just said, you know, about homes and days on market, it made me mm-hmm. think of, um, really with my sellers, I, 
ask them. I mean, there's a there's a crude difference between pricing the home right and pricing it totally wrong. But within that range, you know, I ask my sellers, well, what are your goals here? Do you want to sell it really fast or are you more concerned with a value amount? Because, you know, if there's a specific number that falls within that range of what's acceptable for market value, that could be a little longer days on market. Or are you looking to just put the house in the market with a great price that gets in contract within, you know, within the first week. Yeah. So there's also that bit of strategy. Definitely. That's why they want to work with a professional. Yeah. You know, I think that in this market, it's not as straightforward as what we saw during the pandemic. You know, you could put a sign in front of a house and it would fetch 40 offers way over list price. Yeah. That's not the market we're in anymore. And so it takes a true professional like one of you two in order to price the home accurately and not based on the emotional tie that the seller has to the home yeah. or because the seller knows their neighbor sold at this other price, right? We can't use that 2020, 2021 pricing strategies in today's market. Yeah. Uh, to give a little insight for our listeners here, the way that agents typically price a home is we actually look on the MLS and see what's been sold mm -hmm. uh, within the last 90 days. Anything more than 90 days is a little outdated because the market is always shifting. It's always shifting. Yeah. yeah so honestly, I think we may, I, 90 days is standard. Yeah. Um, that's like what three months right there. Yeah, and and um, and, and what I know, some people are you're even skipping twenty twenty two. Yeah, yeah, and or even twenty twenty one. So you're looking back at okay, beginning uh, uh you know twenty nineteen or twenty twenty. What were things like then? Just because there's like such the the you know such volatility that yeah, definitely you might want to cut those out. But yeah, you know probably better to get you know within more recent. So I did these comparative market analysis, the CMAs, and I yeah. look at and I, I look at a map with a radius and I see some homes that were sold in 2022 and I look at the value. Um, like I look at other homes, like same number of bedrooms, same number of bathrooms. And man, like the way that they're listed now compared to what they were listed back then, it's like black and white. It's it's so like 180s. Yep. Like they are, they're not gonna get that price that they want for 2022, uh, unless you know some other strenuous like situation happens, like COVID or something like that. But yeah, yeah, well, it, it ties into the interest rates. Yeah, right. So the price of the home tells us what the monthly payment is mm -hmm. with regards to the interest rates as well. Yeah. yeah. So when we were at two and a half to three and a half percent rate, a buyer's ability to purchase changes Oh yeah, as compared to where we are now. Mm -hmm. So if interest rates have doubled since then, in theory, don't like to talk interest rates because that changes frequently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if, if the interest rate changes drastically, it changes everybody's ability to purchase. Their buying power essentially. And so exactly. Yeah. And so when buying power changes, the home, the price that homes fetch change. Yeah, the home prices need to somewhat like tailor, not like completely, but yep. they need to, you know, attract these buyers who have a much less buying power than they used to, what well, used to have, I guess. Yes. Gotcha. It's been a lot of great questions. Thank you, Tucker. For yeah. uh, do you have any other questions that you think of? I mean, anything that that you want to bring up on this podcast, Tucker? While I got the uh, spotlight. Uh, no, I would, I, the last thing I would say that kind of goes back to that final question is 
you want to have a working relationship between the real estate agent and the lender. Mm. And because we, if we go back, we talked about nights and weekends, you know, we're in a very competitive market. The relationship between the client, the real estate agent and the lender is very critical. And so making sure the team works together and has a history of working together is a key component to winning in this market. So, you know, utilizing a discount broker that your real estate agent has never heard of and may lead to a less competitive offer or not getting a pre-approval when you need to. So when deciding who you're going to work with, it makes sense to work with a team that has history together. Mm. So that, that would be my final component to, mm. you know, helping people decide who they want to work with is find out who's worked together and right. who's been successful leading people to the home, you know, in our market. Awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for stopping by. I'm pretty sure a lot of the viewers will find it having it uh find it very valuable to have a, a loan officer come by and answer these questions for us and even for them possibly and uh hopefully um hopefully we got to do this one more time or a few more times in the future but thank you again yeah thank yeah. you thank you for both of you for having me and look forward to coming back again in the future okay awesome all right everyone see you next week bye